idea for the pastor's heart and we're doing something a little unusual today. We're going to speak with uh, Archbishop Laurent Mabanda from the Anglican Church in Rwanda. And uh, he grew up, well really Laurent, let's go right back to the beginning. Right. And um, it, was, it was civil war in Rwanda. Yes, um, it's what one would call a civil war, but really to us in Rwanda, that's when the genocide started. Mm. It was 1959. And so that is when my parents fled Rwanda. I was uh, almost five, and we fled to the neighboring country of Burundi. So you, you left with nothing, basically? We left with nothing, basically. In fact, I left with my grandmother. Uh, my father was at school when... Uh, when the war broke, so he was uh, not with us. And my mother was expecting a baby, so she had to go a little bit ahead of time. And, um, and so none of the family members fled with each other. I fled with my grandma, and my grandfather was watching for the cows. He wanted to bring his cows, and my father was at school, so yeah. But later on, we all met up in Burundi in a refugee camp, in a Danish Baptist uh, Refugee Receiving Center. So, so uh, for those who don't know, and a generation does grow up who doesn't know, yes. can you just tell us some of the horror of that genocide? During that time, though I don't know much except what I've heard, but I personally, even as a child, remember people who were wearing shabby clothes and they were wearing um, uh, leaves and they were burning houses and um, and um, I, I didn't see any person killed at that time but they were largely burning houses and rooting houses so um, however we know that from that time that there were over 200 thousand people who fled the country as refugees into Burundi mm -hmm. and Eastern Congo. There were also other people who were killed and uh, during that time and that is really when the upheavers uh, of, of uh, uh, really what you call the genesis of the genocide mm. started in Rwanda and uh, so you had many people who left Rwanda, some going to Burundi, others Congo, others Uganda, others Tanzania, and fled into those countries. And uh, many with hopes that they would come back into the country, but it ended up being that these people stayed in for many years. Take a, a good example of my family. We fled in 59, and uh, my parents didn't come back into Rwanda until 1994, after the genocide. Wow. So all that time, and, um, and uh, it, it was very difficult. So most people lived in the refugee camps in the neighboring countries, even though those refugee camps later on became more of a refugee settlement. There is a difference in a refugee camp that has people who have nothing, who are living in huts, who, who the Red Cross, the World Food Program, all these organizations are trying to bring in food. And uh, there's a transience uh, to it. Yes. Yeah. And then later on, people come and so get used to those places where they are, they get settled, and so they end up living in more in refugee settlement, um, depending on how long they are going to be in those camps. And tell me, were your parents Christian? 
My father, my parents were from a Catholic background, and uh, my father, uh, Retron, converted and became a Christian in the refugee camp in Burundi, where he had started uh, an elementary school in the refugee camp to cater to the children of the refugees. They were not building nothing. It was just under the trees. But he started a school that grew to 3,000 uh, really? kids. Uh, within a very short time. And then American missionaries who were coming into the refugee camp to minister to the people into the refugee camp, they witnessed to him, and he accepted Christ. And a year later, my mother became a Christian. And so I grew up in that kind of environment, mm. but didn't make my own commitment until, uh, until uh, that I know of, that I made on my own, until when I went to high school, my first year of high school in the... Um, in 70. Tell us about um, accepting Christ for you. <clears throat> well, first of all, I had grown in this environment that I was telling you, and every Sunday, missionaries will do the, the calling, they will preach, they will invite people to receive Christ. And as kids, I remember we will go and we will kneel down and they pray for us. And at the end, they gave us either canyons or clothes or candy or something like that. So that was attractive for many mm. years. Uh, as as far as they would they would um, they would call for people to come forward, you went as a kid because of what you received. Mm. And so, and at the same time, I know that somewhere on there I made a personal commitment of accepting Jesus Christ in my personal li uh, life as my personal Savior, confessing my sins. But because I went so many times, even though I was a good kid growing up, helping my father, my father later on became a catechist, and, and, and he was reading our little church that we had. Um, later on, I heard the missionaries. I accepted Christ when I was such and such age, at such and such time. Some of them even knew the dates. So um, when I went first in high school, my first year of high school, we had what we called the Christian uh, witness uh, week uh, was like a revival week and a preacher came and he was preaching to the students and we listened like anybody else and by the time it was the second day I felt like what he was saying and what he was preaching was all about me Mm -hmm. And I started uh, feeling like this man, this man, they must be a student, a friend of mine who went to him and reported to me of everything I do. <laughs> I, actually, I actually went to him and I said, what they told you is wrong. And I even know who told you that. And I started quoting names of people I thought had, that they had gone to him to report to me. And uh, he reached out and he said, son, uh, pray. Pray. It could be that the, the Spirit of God is talking, He's talking to, to you. And, uh, and then the next day, he was preaching. And when I was sitting, I felt like he was looking at me right in the eye. And I started sliding a little bit down so that he doesn't <laughs> see me. And I started sweating. And, uh, and, uh, and from that time on, I don't know how I got forward. Uh, or I knew hands were on me, people were praying for me, and then at the end uh, they made me stand and say, uh, have you prayed a prayer for salvation? And I said yes, and um, they made me repeat the prayer, and uh, I repeated the prayer to invite Jesus Christ to come into my life as my personal Savior, to forgive my sins. And from that time I went back to sit where I was seated, feeling like a huge burden had been lifted, lifted. And, and 
I, I was not sweating anymore. I was not <laughs> feeling like he's looking me in the face. In fact, I wanted to stand up and tell what God had done for my life. And from that time on, it, I, have, I have been uh, in love with the Word of God. I have uh, started serving Christ I've, immediately, I've, shortly I've heard, after I've that. I've heard a story about you walking barefoot across Africa. Is to Bible college. Is that right? Um, uh, yes, it, it is mixed. Um, first <laughs> tell, of us, all, tell us the story. First of all, the story is that uh, when I finished elementary school, there were not many uh, possibilities of high school in Burundi. And in fact, even the few high schools that were there were for the Burundi nationals, not Rwandan refugees. So to go to high school, it was more of a quota system. Mm-hmm. And, but somehow friends of my father were able to get me through the back door and got me to, 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 to a secondary school. I finished the secondary school by, um, I had to support myself. I had to work for missionaries, work in their homes, and they would provide for some little money. And uh, by God's grace, I finished, uh, I finished my high school. And when I finished high school, I wanted to go to the university in Burundi. But there was no room, no opportunity, because it was one university taking 400 students. So there was no opportunity for me. And at that time, I decided that I was going to leave Burundi, go to Kenya, and see if there would be a possibility of me going to university or to a Bible college, for that matter. So I left Burundi. Uh, on foot in six months, uh, 500 miles, and took off through Tanzania. And I would just follow people who were going to the market. The next day, I would watch who is going uh, next, sometimes following people who were doing some smuggling and selling things that they took from one town to, an, to another. It took me six months, but finally I got to Nairobi, raved in the streets of Nairobi for about three weeks. And then it came so to what in the streets of Nairobi? Na- yes, you slept li- in the street. Lived on the streets of Nairobi. Right. And my 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 base was the bus station. Right. I went to where there was a twenty-four hour bus station that operated. So how so old were you? I was twenty. Right. Okay. So you will sit in the in in a bus, and when the bus was ready to go, and the and they were saying, hey, ready to go, you, you get off that bus, you go into another to one, and, one. You, yeah. and you sit, and you wait until it is full, you move again, and sometimes you learn to look people in the face and say, I'm hungry, can you give me something to eat or, or beg some, for some little money? But time came when I uh, was moving toward the hotel, uh, called the Ambassador Hotel in Nairobi. I was looking at the hotel across, and as I was standing there, two people passed me, and they were talking in my language. So I stopped them, and I said, you are talking in my language. And they looked at me, and they said, who are you? And uh, so then I started telling them the stories, telling them about myself, and one of them looked at each other, and he said, hmm, he's one of us. And then suddenly this one uh, used the name, and I launched on that name. I said, are you so-and-so's son? And with your mother so-and-so, with your sister so-and-so, I gave the whole nine yards. And then they were stunned. And they looked at me, and they said, this guy knows our parents. And they took me from the streets and took me to their home and gave me a place to stay. Long story short, it was in Kenya then that later on, I got to be introduced to um, Bible College that was run by World Gospel Mission. That same mission was the same mission that was doing work in the refugee camp where I grew up. And um, <clears throat> so I went to that uh, Bible College, 
and uh, it was hard, it was difficult. Uh, but I was able to tell them that uh, I really feel a calling to serve, and they accepted me after a very difficult time. They accepted me in, in the Bible cash on condition that I will find money to pay for my tuition. And all I said to them was, God will provide. And the principal looked at me and said, I want you to know I'm not God. And I said, <laughs> yes, uh, you're not God, but God will provide. And sure enough, God provided for me and uh, a young lady out of Greenfield, Indiana in the U.S. gave a gift of $300. I needed 450 and the principal who had said she is not God also paid for the 150 <laughs> I needed. That was my first year and uh, year after year God provided and I finished the Bible college. And after that, I joined the Campus Crusade. We're, we're talking the heart uh, of the pastor. Yes, and so yes. some of your heart has obviously been for the person in the refugee camp. Yes, yeah. yes. After, after my time with Campus Crusade, when I had gone to Kinshasa, Congo, now DRC Congo, and I had gone there to, as an interpreter and from English to French for a conference they called Here is Life. So I went there, we had two weeks of a Here is Life campaign. After the two weeks, they needed somebody. And so they asked me if I would stay to be one of the translators and staff trainer. So I ended up staying, I had gone for two weeks, I ended up staying a year and a half. And so I was hired, I became a staff trainer for Campus Crusade, I was also a translator. <laughs> for Campus Crusade. So I translated the material from English to French. I turned around and used that material to train, to, to, to teach uh, people who were coming from the French-speaking countries, Madagascar, Burundi, Rwanda, and even West Africa. So I served the Campus Crusade in Kinshasa for a year and a half, and then later on I was asked to go help start uh, Campus Crusade in Ivory Coast. So I went there, I stayed for a very short time, came back into Kinshasa, and then they said, what about Burundi, where I had grown up? So yeah. I went back to Burundi, helped uh, launch a campus crusade. I was actual country director for about, um, for almost three years and a half. And during that time, I worked in the churches, we trained the pastors, we reached out to student ministry at the university. I even went into the refugee camp where I used to live and I grew really? up to show the Jesus film. And uh, during that time, I uh, met my wife in, um, in Burundi, in the capital city of Burundi. We dated for a while and then uh, we got married in 84. And in Burundi. In Burundi. And that time, I had already made a decision that I wanted to go for further studies, get my master's degree, and then come back and, and, and train pastors. Mm -hmm. So after I got married two months later, we took off with my wife, we went to the States, no scholarship, nothing. We sold things that people had <laughs> given us as, a, as gifts. We had some little money out of that, we paid our ticket, and whatever was left, we thought it was going to be enough to pay for our schooling for two years and finish two years of my master's and then come back. So I went to the States and won a school in California at Fuller Seminary. And within six months, we ran out of money. We couldn't register mm. and the school kicked us out. Fuller and kicked you out? Yes, because we couldn't pay, we couldn't yeah. register. We had, we had finished the, all the money we had. Mm. 
And then I went to Denver Seminary, which uh, was in Colorado. Somebody introduced me there. They gave me two-thirds scholarship. And the rest I worked uh, in the library. I cleaned the classrooms. Uh, we ate from food, church food pantries. Mm. And, uh, but by God's grace, we were able to finish two years. And I got my master's. It was not only that. I started applying for my doctor's schooling and studies, and I got accepted in one of the best seminaries, Trinity Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, mm. in Chicago. And I went there. There was a pastor who had thought that he could sponsor me. When I got there three months later, he passed away. Oh. And uh, so we didn't get that support. But somehow, God provided... And the school called us and said, we have received 20,000 U.S. dollars donated by somebody who doesn't want to be known, but in the previous church that we were attending in Denver. And that, 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 that facilitated for us to be, uh, to, for me to do my doctoral studies. What and was your doctorate in? It was in education. I did a Ph.D. in education. Right. At the School of Education of Trinity Divinity School in Chicago. And so, besides that money that was provided, I worked at a security job on campus. I was a security, I did security jobs at night. And sometimes I would work in the library during the day, and I did my studies, and by God's grace, I finished everything paid for. And shortly after I finished, I got a job. So my first job in the U.S. was with an organization called Christian Aid. Ah. And I was their Africa director. And I served them for about two years. And then my wife and I decided to go into business because we wanted to be tent makers and support ourselves. So we started buying used clothing from Goodwill stores, Salvation Army, packaging them nicely in bundles, loading containers, uh, eight to six containers a month, shipping to Africa. And we did that for about two years. And then the business went south. And at that time, the business went south because of the problems we had experienced in Kenya without losing our containers there. That is the time that Compassion contacted me in 1992, ah. November. And I got interviewed. I was offered a job. So I was their first pro Africa program director. And um, I served uh, I mean, for a while. That's got to have been so good. Been, it was an been amazing job. Camp. I never thought that something like that could come my way. That yeah. is the type of jobs that we saw that were what we called expatriates. Yeah. And, uh, so that came. So I was hired from the U.S., sent to Nairobi, and uh, it, was, it, was a God, it was God's gift to my family and I. Mm. And so I served the compassion there. Then, 94, the genocide happened. Yeah. When the genocide happened in 94, Compassion asked me, what are we going to do? And so they put a team together that was going to lead, that we do relief work. And so we went in through Uganda and they came behind the fighting uh, lines of the people that wanted to stop the genocide. And our job was just to attend to the needs of the children, to to refugees in displaced camps and and just gathering people providing the basics water food blanket we saw the horror of of of, of what happened when rwanda was reduced in ashes uh, by the genocide against the tutsi we saw we saw bodies we saw dead bodies we saw I mean, 
everything. I don't want to go into that details. And um, and and but we were also there to serve in a dangerous time. We could have been killed, especially me. I was probably among the, uh, the only Rwandan uh, in, in, on my team um, mm. and uh, also one of the people that could have been killed because of who I was. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, uh, not having some sort of protection of being yes, an American citizen. Yes. Or, no, yeah. that, that didn't count. That, yeah. that wouldn't count. Um, but we served, and uh, how, did you, how, how did you process that theologically? Um, have you wrestled I, with God about I, that? Uh, to be honest with you, well, two things happened. One, yes, I was angry. Second, I didn't have the time to even think about it. Yeah, I, I, I was, I was on a mission, and the mission was to help. rescue, to mm -hmm. help. And third, this was my country. These were my people that had been butchered. So I didn't really have the time to process. In fact, people that I was working with, they were saying, you are not grieving. How come you are not grieving? I didn't have time to grieve. Mm -hmm. And so we you continued kind of on. Yes, yeah. continued on until the genocide was stopped. Uh, by the patriotic, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, and then we launched into relief and trauma counseling, and what we called um, um, reconnecting the children that displaced the kids with either their parents or other families. And so I was managing a team. I was rushing, living in Rwanda at the same time, going to see my family in Nairobi. And so that whole process, we went from relief. To, to rehabilitation. And by the time we set into the rehabilitation process, uh, which was by 95, this country was reduced in ashes, completely everything destroyed. Mm. A, a million people and over yeah. killed within 100 days. It was terrible. It was unheard of. Many of you, many of the people heard about Rwanda just because of the genocide against mm. Tutsi. It is so sad that that's what put us on the map. But at the same time today, we praise God that the country has recovered from the ashes of the genocide. And this country of Rwanda we are talking about today is the third least corrupt country of Africa. It's the cleanest country in Africa. I think I saw on your Twitter feed you called it the Switzerland of the Africa. The Switzerland of Africa. <laughs> it, is, it is a country where the survivors of genocide learned to, to they basically lost everything. They lost children, they lost uh, husbands, they lost wives, they children survived, and they lost everything. But what is amazing is that these people who have lost everything had one thing to give. And that one thing to give that they had was to forgive those that who killed their loved ones, was to forgive those that destroyed their lives completely. So um, in Rwanda today, we rejoice that the reconciliation has taken place, is a country that is united, is a country where people are living together, is a country that is on the rise. That's so exciting. And, uh, and, and it is amazing what just has happened. So and you're now the Archbishop of Rwanda. <laughs> <laughs> that is an interesting thing, because who, who, who would have ever, finding me in the refugee the camp refugee as a camp. kid, who would have, you know, I, 
my whole elementary school up to grade five. I never had a classroom or a building. It was always under the tree. You would have met me at that time and you would say you dismiss me. As a kid, I didn't go to school normal days, Monday to Friday, because I was also kind of somehow trying to help my family survive. Yeah. So doing a little business here and there. It is by God's grace. It's a miracle that I am where I am today. Live alone becoming the Archbishop, thinking, going to America, studying, getting a bachelor, getting a master's degree, getting a PhD, serving in the ivory towers of yeah. the U.S. Now, tell me the ministry of Christ Jesus in Rwanda. What is exciting you at the moment? What is exciting at the moment is that the church in Rwanda is growing. People are coming to Christ. And to just give you an example, I went into a diocese when I first became a bishop, and this diocese had 70,000 members. Seven years later, I leave the diocese, and we are about 104,000 members. Wow. And in that, in that church, we saw a ministry of children growing uh, to where we had an early childhood program that went from four centers to 195 centers, 22,000 kids in the program. In that church we saw, um, we started a community Bible study that grew from a few women and the men that were meeting to where we had 39,000 people meeting on a weekly basis. In fact, that program we have now taken it nationwide throughout the whole Anglican Church. We have a person now in my office who is coordinating that. That early childhood program that we are talking about uh, that had 195 centers, we are now taking it nationwide throughout the whole mm. Anglican Church. We have a goal of 500 centers. So the church is growing. The challenges that we have is that of discipleship. Mm -hmm. The challenge that we have is that of training pastors. In fact, in Rwanda now we have a new law that says that if you are going to be a pastor, you have to have a bachelor degree. If you already have a bachelor degree in another field, you have to have at least a diploma. And this is why we are starting what, uh, uh, a university. Now, this is so exciting. I'm thrilled about this. Yes. An East African Christian. Anglican Christian University. We are actually taking out that word Anglican to call it East African Christian, Christian University. university. <laughs> the reason is we want to open our doors to other churches that have a need of equipping and training their pastors. Because we are doing an institution. Uh, in Rwanda. They, they, they were a Pentecostal one, it's closed now because they don't have accreditation. There was another one that tried to start, it was also closed because now the requirement is not only do you have a, a degree or a diploma, if you already have a, a different degree, you also, it also has to come from an accredited institution. Mm. So we are starting East African Christian University. We are doing some building. We just finished the dorm that will house about 110 students. We are uh, remodeling some classrooms, making them small and making them big so that we can have a room for where students can come in 50 or 100 and others in 20. We are building a dining hall now so that they can <coughs> eat there. The challenges we have, of course, is that of... Uh, and it's primarily theological education. It is 
Uh, currently, the way we started, it was, it was what we called Chigari Anglican Theological uh, College. Mm -hmm. It started in 2006, but it has been off and on, dwindling basically. And sometime it, it went from residential to where it became uh, once uh, every three months and really almost, almost dying. So we have revamped it now, but we want to transform it into a Christian university. And when we open doors, because we are waiting for accreditation, even though we have students there now learning English, when we open door, we will have a school of theology. We wanted to, we wanted to do uh, business. Why business? Because you know, sometimes sometime we have people with, with, yes, business degree, but without Christian and biblical principles. And so we want to do business, we want to do communication, we want to do public health. Some of those departments sounds like uh, self-serving because we have schools, we have clinics, we have hospitals, we need the communicators, and, but it is also a way of contributing mm. and developing and continuing to construct our country. So five departments to start with, theology, education, business, communication and public health. Now, GAFCON. What's your involvement been in GAFCON over the years? Well, GAFCON, 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 uh, I think is a God-given uh, uh, gift to the church today, given all these issues that are going on, uh, people who are denying the authority of scripture, people who are making it all about human sexuality when it really is the issue of biblical authority and inerrance of scripture. And um, <clears throat> But maybe I'm going too far. My role is I'm a deputy uh, um, general secretary for the Eastern and Southern Africa. I also have been elected here as vice chairman of GAFCON, uh, so I'm going to be the vice chair, or I am the vice chair. Um, I, I wanted to help uh, the East African and Southern African churches, and especially dioceses and the bishop, to, to challenge us to proclaim the gospel. Mm to bring people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I want to challenge us to look at the authority of the scripture, not be distracted by all these things that are helping, but also help people who are struggling with this whole issue of human sexuality, of, of, of not taking the scripture seriously, um, so, it's, so it's exciting. It's exciting what the GAFCON is, is doing. I'm excited to be part of GAFCON, the uh, Rwandan, the Church of uh, uh, the Anglican Church of Rwanda is a GAFCON province. is very strong. We have eleven dioceses, and all the eleven dioceses are together. We are marching together. We are working together. We are proclaiming Christ faithfully. And we are encouraging others to do so. That's why the church is growing. And uh, we are not going to be distracted by these all issues that are happening out there. And yet we have to help people understand what the issues are. So um, I know that there are people who are questioning and asking questions, what about Lambeth, what about this? We have made a declaration as the Anglican Church of Rwanda that we are not going to Lambeth. Why? Because of that resolution 110, 
that they have violated because they are not inviting people who are proclaiming Christ to come to the Lambeth. Instead, they are inviting gay uh, bishops and they are inviting where they say they are not inviting their partners, but they have allowed them to come. And so I think we have really not much in common. And, uh, and our desire is to our desire is to proclaim Christ mm-hmm. and to make him known and to proclaim him faithfully. Lauren, thanks so much for coming and sharing welcome. your heart with us today. Yeah, welcome. My guest on The Pastor's Heart has been Laurent Mabanda, the uh, Archbishop of Rwanda and an amazing journey. Hey, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we would love it if you could hop over to the Apple Podcasts app and give us a rating and review. That helps us in the rankings and lets other people discover the pastor's heart. And again, if you are able to help us out by being a financial partner, go to our Patreon link, patreon.com slash the pastor's heart.